everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. I'm your host, James Huang. It's a deep dive week here on Nerd Alert, and we have a very special guest on the show today. Rob English is a custom builder based in Eugene, Oregon, and the man behind the brand, English Cycles. He's best known for his road and all-road builds, but his repertoire covers a remarkably wide range of genres, even including fat bikes and tandems. Whatever type of bike he's building, though, he builds exclusively in steel, and despite only officially being in the business for less than 10 years, he's earned quite a reputation for his engineering-driven, functional reform design, as well as some truly mind-blowing creativity. If you've never seen his single-sided bikes or his amazing Graham Obrey tribute machine, you've got to head over to cyclingtips.com to check them out. I wanted to learn a little more about what makes Rob tick, where some of these incredible ideas come from, why he does things the way he does, and also get his thoughts on some more general tech topics within the industry. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Rob. Rob English, it is quite the pleasure for me to catch up with you. It's been really a very long time since I've seen your face, actually. And we were just trying to figure out how long it's been. It's been uh, four years, three years. I can't remember now. Three, I think. Yeah, I think it was NABS 19, I think. Yeah, it's been a while. Which seems like it does seem like a very long time ago. Well, I know a lot of our listeners are really excited for this interview. I posted something on our Vela Club Slack channel talking about how I was going to be interviewing you today. And uh, yeah, there, there certainly is a lot of intrigue around uh, you as a builder and just sort of the stuff that you're doing and, and sort of like your general opinion on bike stuff. Um, I, I dare say that you, you are, you're pretty unique out there. Okay, well, thank you. Yeah, we'll uh, see if we can answer any questions. <laughs> well, let's, let's start kind of earlier on, um, maybe just a little bit of background. Like what, what is your background in the bike industry? You know, in, how, did you, how did you get here? Um, so I got, I got hooked on mountain biking as a teenager. Um, and that was the nineties when everything was the machined aluminum, manodized bling that I couldn't afford. Um, but, at high school, I had access to the metal shop and just started machining stuff. So I was making my own seat posts and skewers and brakes and, you know, anything I could dream up. Um, and ended up building my first bike as a school project uh, when I was 15, which was terrible. But, you know, you, <laughs> you look, <laughs> do you still have it? Uh, no, no. Um, I have I have the, the unicycle I built in high school. Still got that. And um, I built a wheel truing stand that I still use to build all my wheels today. So some things survived. Uh, but with that, just like really interested in bikes and riding them a lot and... Um, went off to study mechanical engineering because you can't study bicycle engineering. So uh, it was the closest thing. Um, and when I graduated, um, I did the usual graduate thing of like right, right into all the big companies of like, I like bikes. Can you give me a job? Like, no, they won't. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is actually a good thing, I think, because... If you go to a big company as an engineer, you don't generally get to make anything. You're mostly doing the design work, and um, I really like making things. So I ended up taking a, a job with a startup based in Massachusetts. Um, I was doing recumbents, but um, and very small. So as, as the bike guy, I was doing everything, um, which was really cool. We were looking to design this line of bikes. So got to go visit the, uh, 
the factory at Waterford and um, the the Sapper factory and you know really learn about the industry and learn a lot about business because when they tried for this really fast growth rather than letting it grow slowly they blew through the money and we were out of business and <laughs> but incredible learning experience um, and so. I still wanted to be in the bike industry. Still wasn't sure how to make that work, and but was wasn't in any hurry. Um, so I think of that next like five years of my life as my uh, my bike bum period, where I avoided the winter every year, went south, wintered in Spain and Australia and New Zealand, um, and would come back and work a bit and race in the UK in the summers. Um, and during that time, I picked up some contract work here and there. So I ended up doing all the design work for a Danish bike company. For, so I did the geometry for their whole range of bicycles. Um, so I got to learn a whole bunch there. Um, that was, you know, stuff being made in Taiwan. Did a ton of wheel building, bunch of wrenching. Um, and uh, partway through that, I ended up, actually when I was in Massachusetts for that first job, um, I bought a bike Friday, folding bike, because um, I always wanted one because it seemed like such a neat concept. And um, it's, <laughs> funny enough, that's still the only time I've ever just paid full retail for a bicycle, just bought <laughs> <laughs> one. Um, and uh, during my, my traveling, I was actually in Japan with that bike and wrote, wrote to Bike Friday to give them some feedback and said, oh, by the way, here's my resume. And that started a, a conversation that, took five years to turn into a, a, a work visa and a job. Um, and for me, that was that size company was kind of perfect to go in as the engineer because um, got to design and prototype a new model and then build a production line for it and then train everybody in there to build it and oversee production and be involved with every step of the process, which is you know, super fun and engaging um, and what an opportunity to learn. So it seems to me that, um, you know, having, having known you for several years now that, you know, you have this, you have sort of this, uh, this reputation for really building these beautiful steel road bikes largely. Um, but your background is really pretty eclectic as far as what your bicycle background is. Like you said, you built a unicycle when you were in high school, you, you, you bought a bike Friday, you worked for a recumbent company, like you're kind of all over the place, right? Yeah, I guess so. Like, I'm just, I'm just a bike guy. I'm not, all bikes are good. Like, you know, and I learned loads of stuff with the recumbent stuff because I was involved with racing those things too. So I'm still, I'm still the British hour record holder. I did just over 50 miles in one hour and uh, I held the, the 200 meter record for, that got beaten a few years ago, but I held that for about 10 years. So I've you know worked with carbon fiber doing that stuff and things and but coming from having that influence of designing I guess non-regular bicycles it really gives you a different mindset of approach. So I'm not I don't have that traditional training of like here's a bicycle and here's how you build it and here's how it should look. It's like well let me think about what I'm trying to accomplish and how can I achieve that. So when did you eventually leave Bike Friday to start your own frame company? So one of the many cool things about Bike Friday is that they have an open shop policy. So once you're trained up as being safe, you've got access to the factory outside of hours. Um, so 
Um, that's so, I, you know, I'd go and mess around when I had time after hours and, uh, you know, did a lot of time trialing in the UK and always wanted to build myself a time trial bike because I'm, I kind of need a custom build for that because I've got very long limbs. So trying to get the bars low enough to get the position I wanted. Um, so the first 700C bike I built was a time trial bike. Um, and, and I took it along and won the state championships on it. And I was like, oh, actually, maybe I can make a competitive bicycle. Um, yeah, that's where that began. Um, and then, you know, it's like, oh, well, maybe I'll try to build myself a road frame and mountain bike. And then friends ask, can you build us something? And I, uh, I started accumulating tools at home, not because I intended to have a business, just because I've like always wanted my own lathe. So I bought, bought a lathe and had that in the garage. And, um, and they just, it was really fortunate. Like I've talked to other builders and they've like, you know, had a business plan and like tried to, it's been a lot of pressure on them to make it work. Um, whereas I didn't have any goals and it's just kind of see what happened. So it was able to build organically, uh, while I still had a full-time job. Um, and then I was able to say to bike Friday, okay, I'd, I'd like to go to four days a week now and then three days a week. And then eventually said, you know, okay, I'm going to give you, I gave him like three months notice when I finally quit. So I could have a smooth handover. Yeah. So then ended up with my own, own company and doing that full time. So what year was that now? So that was 2013. And it was actually kind of cool because I gave my notice in January, I think, and then went to NABS in March, and that was the year I won Best in Show. So that was kind of a good a good time to have that when I'm just going on my own. So it's a pretty good entry. Yeah, yeah I'll take it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I, I think I remember that show. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I think NAB certainly has has played uh, a, a pretty key role in in just sort of your visibility because you you have always just brought these just absolutely amazing showstoppers every year. And what's interesting is that they I feel like you have quickly established a sort of I don't know about design philosophy, but you I would say that for people who understand and know what your bikes are like. It seems like even with some of the more outlandish stuff, you could not have a logo on there and people would maybe still guess that you built it. So it kind of makes me wonder, like, what what is it exactly that makes an English an English? Because it does seem to permeate through no matter what type of bike it is that you've built. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, it's, it's funny, actually, when I go to my painter and you, know, you paint for a bunch of different builders, you see the raw frames hanging up and it's yeah, mine are pretty distinctive um and others sometimes are but other times it's like who built that like <laughs> um so i think i come from a, a very like engineering design philosophy of the bicycle is a tool and i just i want it to be purposeful and that, and that's it um so i really don't care what it looks like um Sometimes the customers might have an aesthetic consideration they they prefer, and that's fine. But um, it's it's function driven design, and having that engineering background and maybe non traditional background, 
I kind of look at stuff maybe with slightly fresher eyes sometimes of asking, okay, why is that that way? And does it need to be? And um, so, you know, the, the seat stays, which everyone kind of asks about would be the, the obvious example of that, of that was me just doing a basic analysis of the, the structure and saying, okay, I've got this triangle. The chain stays are triangulated across the rear hub, takes care of the lateral stiffness. So seat stays are then just a prop and are not carrying very much load. And for a steel tube, it's just a, it's a compressive load and steel tube loaded in compression is incredibly strong. So I can make that smaller, save weight. Um, and uh, I still haven't found the limit on that yet. Like I keep going smaller and it's like, and it's just the same. It's, it's really, really fascinating. Well, I think it's funny that um, I can't remember how many months ago this was now, but in one of the pro road races, um, I, th I think it was, was it Yumbo Visma, uh, one of the one of the teams that was sponsored by Cervelo. I'm sure you caught caught wind of this, uh -huh. but they one of the riders I think either finished a race or something, and and one of the seat stays was completely broken. And we did actually a, a video episode talking with uh, I think it was Scott Roy from from Cervelo talking about this, and and he he said very clearly that. Essentially, with modern frame design, the seat stays really don't do a whole lot. Right. They, yeah, he said they were just there because the UCI said they had to be, right? That was the, yeah, something like um, that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I've done, I've done bike, like bike Fridays with just cantilevered stays. Um, and there's, there's a limit to that. You have to, you have to beef them up to, to not have twist in, in the back. Um, so you can, I think you can build a lighter structure in, in steel at least. By having a, a minimal seat stay, but yeah, it's uh, there's not a lot of loading in there. Yeah, it's interesting when you see, you know, like these you know three quarter inch seat stays and and things. It's like, well, why? <laughs> <laughs> Looking at the rest of the frame, it's it's quite at least for your for your kind of more bread and butter road type bikes and and even your mountain bikes too. I mean, they're very traditional double diamond for the most part. You know, you don't do you don't do a whole ton of tube shaping. Uh, it's you know mostly straight tubes, that sort of thing. Um, does does that in your mind just just continue to work best? I mean, it, it's what bicycles have settled on after you know, hundreds of years of development, essentially, and that's still what we have. So, does that still make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, a, a round a round tube gives you the best you know torsional stiffness for it you know, for the size and weight. Um, so I do, I do do some shaping. So most of my top tubes are overlized in-house, um, to increase the stiffness in the plane. We, we want it. Um, and I do some bio-overlization of the, the down tube at the bottom bracket and, and things like that. Um, but it's subtle. Well, I guess I'm thinking more shaping in terms of like the fact that the tubes are still straight. Like you don't do any, mostly like you don't do any weird curves or bends or that sort of thing. I mean, you, you do do a fair bit of ovalization. Like you said, it's still quite subtle. Um, but if you just look at it in profile and you're just drawing point to point, you know, kind of center line to center line, you're basically looking at straight lines. Sure. And that's the most efficient structure, right? Is to, you know, a triangle is, is a very stiff, is by definition a, a, a stiff structure and straight lines is the most efficient way to join that. So basic engineering. So I, I end up adding curves when people ask for it for the look. But um, yeah, it's hard to beat that triangle. I mean, I've done like the Obri bike and stuff I've done. You know, I've done some other monotube designs and they can 
functionally be be as good, but they tend to be heavier. Although it's funny that that Obrey frame is probably the stiffest frame I've ever built, <laughs> re- remarkably. Because I mean, as the uh, the head tube was one millimeter off in alignment, I was trying to trying to change it off that one millimeter. I had it bolted on the alignment table, and I was standing on the head tube and bouncing up and down. The thing would not move. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Uh, spe- speaking of steel, I mean, you you build almost exclusively in steel. Still, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, what, why is that? And I guess how much of that sources back to when you were working with Bike Friday? Yeah, so I mean, definitely that's why we got, I got very familiar with it, with steel as a material at Bike Friday. I mean, it was, it's funny when I arrived, so like, you know, coming from England, um, I was a metric guy, right? Like, and I <laughs> come into the Bike Friday shop, they're like, oh, just go grab a piece of inch and a quarter 035. I'm like, wait, wait, what? Um, so I had to like learn another language, um, but in handling all that stuff all the time, I get to point out, I can pick up a tube now and tell you what the wall thickness is by the feel because they're used to it. Um, and I mean, steel is, if, when you just look at the material properties, steel is just, it's a fantastic structural material. Um, you know, it's basically got the highest modulus of any material we use for frame building. Like technically, some of the high modulus carbons approach it, but you don't use the carbon on its own. You know, it's a carbon fiber reinforced plastic, so the actual modulus you end up with is lower, and uh, and it's and steel's really strong, and it's um, you know obviously the downside is the density, um, so you're never going to build as light, but all the other properties are are great and infinite fatigue life when the load's kept under the fatigue limit. And so I, I really enjoy working with it. Um, it's, it's very, it's pretty benign to work with in terms of my, my health and safety. And, uh, and it's just really, I guess I, I've always been the kind of the doing what everyone else isn't doing kind of thing of like, okay, they've, everyone's saying steel's dead as a performance material, whatever. And, Let's see. Like the modern alloys, they've, they've continued to develop, um, and what you can do with it, and like the the understanding of what makes a bicycle work well is still like we're still learning about that. Incredibly, like you know, 120 years on of, <laughs> of bicycles. Um, so it gives me a lot of flexibility because there's such a you know vaster range of of tubing. Um, and butt profiles and shapes and sizes available um, in terms of tuning a custom bike uh, makes a, a lot of, a lot of things possible. So, what sort of steel are you using these days? Like, do you have any preferences, or have you noticed anything in particular that's better than something else? No, I mean all the you know Columbus, Reynolds, uh, Dedachi, um, and then there's some American manufacturers taken over where True Temper left off now. So there's and they're all kind of these, uh, you know, high-strength chromoly alloys that are all fairly similar. Um, I've been using mostly Columbus recently because they they have a good selection and um, pretty good distribution at the moment. So as that, but I also do quite a lot of work with forty-one thirty and shape it and butt it in house. Yeah, it's you know just built up 
pretty good catalogue of tubing I keep in stock now. I've still got a bunch of like S3 tubing that I've been hoarding um, so that I can pick each tube for each frame to give the properties I want for that rider. You're doing some stuff in stainless too, aren't you? Yeah. And what, what are your thoughts on stainless? Because I've always felt like, to me, I've always kind of felt, and maybe this was just me in my head, I've always felt like like stainless frames were kind of like springier. Um, but was that is that sort of inherent to the material or is that sort of just more a function of like, you know, how they tended to be produced in terms of wall thicknesses and tubing diameters and stuff like that? Yeah, so all all steel has the same stiffness. So it has the same, mod, same modulus. So, um, but the... The high strength stainless, like the XCR and the 953, um, are stronger, so they can be drawn thinner. So, yeah, if you're riding a uh, like a 953 bike or something that's with the same wall size, it, sorry, same tubing diameters but thinner walls, then it would feel a bit. Uh, it wouldn't be quite as stiff, so you would you'd feel that difference. Um, but yeah, I really. I really like stainless. It's it's horrible to work with. It's just <laughs> it's, with that high strength comes high hardness, um, and so cutting it is challenging. Um, it's more difficult to braise, um, but having then not having to paint it is nice. Um, and in theory, it can build the lightest steel frame possible at the moment. In practice, it's marginal um, and because this material is so hard for those manufacturers to consistently draw the wall thicknesses and hold those tolerances is really difficult. Um, I think Reynolds have just discontinued 953. Oh no. I think, yeah, because they struggled so much with it. So they've, they used to have 953 and then 931 and they've got a new alloy replacing both and just having one range. So I've yet to, I'm waiting for some information about, how well that new alloy brazes and properties and, and things. So you're gonna have to make some more room for for tubes to hoard next to your next to the True Temper <laughs> S3 stuff. Yeah, I know, right? But unfortunately, I I never keep very much stock of stainless because it's so expensive. <laughs> so. Uh, you do some work in carbon fiber too, right? A little bit. Um, yeah, I've done some bikes with uh, carbon fiber seat masks and head tube inserts and. Uh, and things like that. So is that basically like just a um, weight savings thing? It's actually not. Um, that was my original intention because um, I thought I could make it lighter. But it turns out that because you've got to have those lugs or sockets on the frame, and then you've got to have a, a cap for the you know for the seat mast, um, that it's not any lighter than having a really light steel seat tube and a really light carbon seat post. Um, but people really like how it looks. So and that's, that's a totally valid reason to do it. Hmm. Um, what are you building most of these days anyway? Like what, what do people tend to come to you for? Uh, probably the moment I'm mostly doing like all road and gravel bikes, but it, it does vary. Um, I just built a, a mountain bike with drop bars for a guy who's going to do the tour divide. Um, and uh, I do some real kind of slick belt drive commuters and um, of course the odd, odd time trial bike comes along. Um, so it's nice to have that, that variety of, of different things to build. And I really just, what I love most is solving people's problems and whether that's for fit or for, for the 
particular options or function of the bike. Um, and probably my my favorite thing is building for smaller riders, like particularly petite women. Um, is the industry's gotten a bit better, but they're still really underserved by production bikes, not only for getting a fit that works with actually decent handling, because often the way the manufacturers get the fit is to just ignore the handling and <laughs> squeeze everything together. Um, but also those production bikes have to meet the ISO standards and which basically means they're designed for a you know 250 pound rider, no matter that it's this tiny little bicycle. So often they ride horribly. Um, whereas I can say, okay, you're 120 pounds. I can build a bike that's going to ride really well for you, have the right amount of flex in for you. And when those kind of riders who've never had a bike that really fit or worked well for them report back after their first rides, like, and to have them say, oh, this is what it's meant to feel like. Like that's, that's when it's like, that's really important and like actually make a substantial difference to someone's experience. So you've obviously built that, that level of experience over the last, what, I guess, nine years now. Um, I mean, how many frames have you built in that time and how long did it take you to kind of just figure out what works and what doesn't work for people in terms of uh, like tube sizes and wall thicknesses and stuff like that? Yeah, so I'm I'm past 300 frames now, um, and in the early days, I for myself and a few friends, the first frames I built, I built them, we rode them for a while, then I cut out the down tube and put something different in, and we went and rode them. So, like, only changing one variable and then going back on the same roads, you can really, you know, typically humans can be pretty poor at being... Well, we're subjective, right? So it's, it's hard to get an objective result from our experiences. But that was the closest I could get of like, okay, had several months on this. Let's change this one thing and go back. And so I, I got a good sense between my own experience at the size and weight I am and, and from my friends, what the right amount of torsional stiffness is for a bike to feel good in the real world um, and to handle well. So cause you want it to have enough little bit of flex between the wheels that it can you know, find its way down the road without chattering over rough surfaces, but not so much flex that it feels vague when you push hard into a corner. So it's just finding that, that good place in between. Um, so I think I have a pretty good sense of that now, of understanding how the rider's sitting on the bike, what their weight is, how they like to ride, where they like to ride, the surfaces they're riding on, and taking all that information um, into both the geometry and the tube selection. It's funny that you mentioned that you you intentionally build in a certain amount of flex into your frames because I feel like it, for for a very long time the bike industry seemed to be just perpetually chasing this endless goal of just stiffer, 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 and then eventually they did settle on. Um, I think I had a conversation with Damon Reinhardt about this several years ago about how. Um, Certainly, bigger companies realized that eventually that um, that there was a, like a certain torsional stiffness number that was really good, and if you went past that, it really didn't get you anything positive. Um, and it seems like in, in even more recently, looking at something like that that specialized Athos, for example, um, it's funny because that bike seems to have tossed a lot of the traditional metrics that mainstream bike companies were chasing for years and years, and 
instead kind of reverted back to a lot of qualities that custom builders had been prioritizing for a very long time. Do you think that's correct? Yeah, it does seem that way. I mean, it was always, I've been, you know, I've been saying this for years. It's just like the, oh, the bike's 18% stiffer. Was ever like, okay, but what does that mean? Like, is, is stiffer faster? Like, there's, there was never that next level of data of like, and, and it's when you put this amount of power into it, which we can measure, right? We can measure all these things now. So there's, there's no reason not to back it up, but that was never done. Um, so it's been, it has been nice to see this shift in the industry of actually having some more conversations about the ride quality and, and things, because a lot of the time I've processed with my customers has been to kind of educate them. Like, okay, I want a really stiff bike. Okay, well, let, let's talk about what stiffness is, what that actually means and how that translates into a bicycle and uh, where we might want that and where we might not want it. Um, so yeah, it's nice to see uh, a little bit of movement away from just our, our, our bike is X percent better this year um, and to some more meaningful uh, talk about performance. What what do your bikes ride like in general? I mean, so obviously being a custom builder, your 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 job essentially is to make your make your client happy um right you know kind of satisfy whatever needs and wants they're looking for within reason um but it does still seem like in in english and i guess talking more about kind of traditional road all road gravel bikes here um it does seem like in english seems to like you you go for a certain performance characteristic or rod quality in it. and what what is that exactly yeah it's so it's always a conversation with the customer so i can understand how they ride and, and what they like to ride. So maybe I'll talk about my personal bike more a bit. And so for my my personal ethos on that type of bike is I want it to handle like my road bike. So um, my trail figure and my fit and chainstay length and the front center pretty much, I've got everything identical to my road racing bicycle, except I can fit bigger tires. So for me, that's quite a lot of bottom bracket, bottom bracket drop. So the pedal's the same height from the ground as normal. Um, and, you know, tweaking the geometry so I can keep that trail figure low. Um, and that, for me personally, that works for me because I, I know exactly how those bikes ride. It doesn't matter the surface. Uh, and I can get the, the fit I need. Um, and then, yeah, then I dial in that, that torsional stiffness with the the down tube is the main governor of the torsional stiffness of the frame um, with that tube in selection. Um, and, you know, the adding the through axle to the back has definitely helped with tying those chain stays together really securely um, in terms of the, the lateral stiffness at the back. And steel is so stiff intrinsically that like, that's well taken care of. Um, and then I'm a big proponent of a long exposed seat post or seat mast because you can actually get with a cantilevered structure, you can actually get flex at the saddle for the uh, word I hate to say, but vertical compliance. Um, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I, I, every time there's a marketing stuff or a bike test or whatever, and like, oh, this bike has so much, so compliant. I'm like, okay, give me some numbers. Like if there's if there's no data, there's no there's no compliance because 
a triangle is a rigid structure. So if there's if you're getting movement out of there, like how and, and how much, like so this is actually a project I'm working on, and I wish I'd started 300 frames ago, but I've, at least I'm starting now. Is I'm recording data on every frame I build now. I have it on the alignment table anyway, so I'm taking uh, doing a deflection test on the rear dropouts on the head tube, and then mounting it the other way up and doing a a, a vertical deflection test. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because like I've been saying this to other people, so why actually I should see what I can learn. So. By the end of the year, I hopefully have enough data points to be able to make some analysis and see see if there's any surprises of of what's what's going on with different things, and correlate that to um, on on the bikes I'm riding at least if I can if I can feel any of these differences. So, is that something that you've just started to do then? Like, it, it, you're pretty early in. Yeah, I've got about six frames measured so far. Okay. Um, and so so annoying. Like I've I've been always been really skeptical about the the lowered seat stays for adding more compliance. Like just from you know doing a free body diagram in my head of like, well, why would that that doesn't really fit? But so far, a very small data set, but so far the one bike with lowered seat stays has more deflection vertically than <laughs> um, oh my i mean if we if we can get the official rob english stamp of approval for drop seat states really <laughs> being more comfortable then that would be quite the thing <laughs> so certainly it's really fascinating because that bike had uh like 14 millimeter tapered seat stays on it that are dropped and that has more movement than my bike with regular height seat stays with like eight millimeter seat stays on it um which backs up my point that anyway a steel tubing compression isn't isn't moving anywhere um so yeah it'll be interesting it's always there's always more to learn right totally absolutely yeah yeah um you you're generally known i think to be one of the more creative builders out there um you've done so yeah your your bread and butter obviously is fairly normal bikes but you you have done a, a whole bunch of bikes that were pretty out there um like single-sided bikes the the obre tribute bike that sort of thing um where do you get some of these ideas from and and are these just for you or do people come to you with these ideas and say like you know hey rob i want this single-sided bike can you do it well that's where that one came from yeah that was uh a project with uh the first one with fairwheel bikes like back in oof, 2011 where they had a customer who wanted something unique, and they, Jason came to me and said, "Hey, could you think you could do this?" And I had to go, "Well, probably. Let me let me think about that, and you know, go away and design a hub and, and figure all that stuff out." Um, so yeah, so some of it's some of it's customer driven of people coming to me with an idea or a concept, or or sometimes a need that you know needs a, a problem solved. And other times is is me. I mean, for me, you know, I was getting into racing when the whole Aubrey Boardman battle was <laughs> was going on and was fascinated by by Aubrey and his his innovation and so um it was really fun to recreate his bike uh or a version of it. Um yeah and then other things like uh riding with my wife she has we've ridden a tandem for years but she has trouble with her neck and her wrists um and so it's like well we should get got on a recumbent 
and she was much more comfortable. So I was like, well, okay, I'll just build us a recumbent tandem. Um, and, but, you know, we like to travel with our tandem, so I needed to build a recumbent tandem that would pack for travel. So that's what we have. And um, taking that to New Zealand a bunch of times. Um, so, yeah, it's just figuring out what's the problem and how can we solve it. So have you ever had a request from someone that was just like a little too out there? Like it just either was just not possible or just didn't seem like a good idea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm really, I feel really fortunate to be in a position now with my business where I can say no. Um, like early on, it's kind of, you take everything anyone wants to give you. So um, I built, I built some kick bikes and I built, um, some other recumbents and 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 th- I did a full suspension recumbent back in the day. It's like, oh god, like um, and at least now, um, yeah, I can either either say no and if it's something I generally don't want to do, or I have a sense that the amount of time it would take, and so it kind of gets priced out of being being sensible. But uh, yeah, it's nice to to have that freedom and take on take on the projects that I can really get engaged in and and want to want to work on do you have any crazy projects coming up um not really i'm working on a i got asked to us to do a couple of show bikes this year and that's always my opportunity to prototype some stuff that's been kicking around in my head for a while so i've done a couple of gravel bikes with a really really light truss fork um because that's something i've wanted to explore for a while um so we'll see and i'm actually doing some uh some lab testing on that as well because you know i'm getting too old to be crash test dummy at this point so, um, <laughs> yeah for, fortress something you don't really want to mess with uh, yeah exactly um so uh yeah we'll see what we learned there and i, I actually did a a trust chain stay as well for something new um and that was the intention of that was to uh, deal with the issue of the clearance between the tar and the chainring um, in a new way. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. I know what the results are from the deflection testing with that design, so I'm looking forward to writing it to to see because it isn't it isn't as laterally stiff as a normal chainstay. So I want to be curious to see if that matters. Um, so yeah, it's just. Always thinking about stuff and think about how else I could do this, that, or the other, and yeah, try things out. I've always wondered where did these bikes end up anyway? Because like that Obrie bike is yours, right? Like you've raced that bike. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. I raced it last year. Um, <laughs> the uh, the pandemic didn't do wonders for my racing fitness, um, <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't go very fast last year. But when I raced it pre-pandemic. Um, First time out on it without any training on it, I broke my all-time personal best on the local TT course. So it definitely works. Um, it's it's horribly uncomfortable, but it, it, <laughs> it's, it's a fast bike. Um, yeah, so my, my personal collection of bicycles is really ridiculous at this point because, yeah, when I have an idea, I want to try it out. I, I try it out for me and then yeah, it's end up with a lot of bikes. Um, so yeah, I need to, 
there's a nature of the beast, I guess, is you've got to try stuff out. So one of the nice things about steel is you know, that the materials are relatively inexpensive. So it's, it's, it's my time, really, for, for building prototypes. Yeah, and on these, on these two gravel bikes I've done with the truss fork, I'm experimenting with the geometry a little bit too, trying some, uh, some longer fork rakes um, and to push the front center out a bit but maintain the, the same trail. And so just keep little tweaks to try out and see how that feels and what I can learn. Hmm, okay, so needless to say, you're not building these prototypes with your, your precious stock of S3 or 953 at this point. <laughs> <laughs> right yeah more the uh the bit <laughs> i bought a big pile of tubing uh from uh i think it was from when when burley shut down their production years and years ago so i've got like a, a stack of tubing for playing with if i if i, if I need stuff for excellent just trying, excellent. trying stuff out yeah yeah all right so you've been building frames now you started up in well under your own label anyway since 2013 uh, we're now almost 10 years into it, which I guess means that you are due for uh, some sort of 10th anniversary thing. Um, but um, is, is there anything over the last years, or, or I guess over the, the your period of building English bikes that you would that you would update, like anything in terms of the, anything in particular that you've learned over that time that you wish you could maybe apply back in the day? Uh, I it's interesting. I've often reflected that. Some of the things I did the first time, I'm still doing. And it's, it's interesting somehow how that happens sometimes, that you hit on a good solution that works, and so you, you keep doing it. Uh, in terms of going all the way back, one of the things I wish I'd done differently in my time at Bike Friday was I ran every station in, in the factory at some point, apart from welding. And I wish I'd put myself in welding. It's just really difficult to do because under the hood, it's hard to keep an eye on the rest of the line while you're doing that. But I'm never going to have that opportunity again to weld 10 bikes a day. Um, so that would have been nice because I could have been... Uh, I really like brazing, and I think it's a, a really good method for a lot of the joints I do, but there's just the occasional joint that would be better to welded. And it opens up more materials. Um, and, you know, I can TIG. And at some point, I'll get a welder in the shop here and, and do the practice. But the opportunity to just production weld for a few months, like, yeah, that would have been good. Got it. Interesting. But then, but then that, that, that would be one of the things that it, it wouldn't be in English at that point, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> anyway, okay. Um, I, I guess largely owing to your reputation as being, um, being being willing to do a lot of or try a lot of unconventional ideas, or just kind of like you know look outside the box, so to speak, to use that overused cliche. Um, I kind of want to get your take on a bunch of sort of just sort of general bike industry, bike world stuff. Um, okay, because I do remember years and years and years ago, I remember having a conversation. This this must have been pretty early on. I remember having a conversation with you at at a NABS event somewhere, um, and you were you were very kind of dismissive or skeptical or whatever of the whole like curved seat stay thing. Like, yo, how can this work? Or like, or like, you know, I can't remember exactly what the it was something along those lines. Um, 
And a lot of the things that you've, that you've talked about have, have come to pass. So I'm kind of wondering, generally speaking, what do you think the bike industry is doing well these days in terms of frame design? And what do you think it's not doing well? Um, so accommodating a broader range of riders without compromise has really gotten better. Like the days when there would only be one fork rake and they just stuff it on every model and just on the small bikes till the head chewed back and it just awful handling bicycles. But I looked at, I think I was looking at Cervelo the other day and across their whole size range, the trail figure was identical. And they've got, I think, three different fork rakes. And it's like, I commend everybody for doing that. It's like, that's awesome. It's like invest in the tooling to do to do better. Um, so that's really great. Um, all the integrated stuff. I mean, here you guys and the, the Oscar mechanic is just like, I just built one. Um, the, <laughs> I, I saw whole, that. <laughs> yeah, the whole MV integrated in it. And I, yeah, it's time consuming to build. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't, wasn't terrible. Just kind of take your time and work through it. But then I had to pack the thing. And it was like, I, I took the bars out of the stem and that I couldn't get it into a box that way. So I put the <laughs> bars back on the stem then then take the stem off the steerer and there was just enough slack I could rotate the bar and... It's like, oh boy, I'm like, I hope my customer can put this back together. Like, it's, um, and just, uh, I mean, buying a custom bike, at least, you know, the handlebars are going to be positioned exactly right from the off. I mean, that, that's one of the cool things I've had. <laughs> I've had people where I've sent, I've sent them bikes, like with a seat mask, so that the saddle's already been on. And they've got the bike out of the box, put the wheels in, got on and ridden, and they haven't had to adjust anything. And they're like, Oh, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's the wonderful thing of a custom bike is it's, you know, it's dialed from, from the get go. Cause we, hopefully we've done all the work on fit and position before we start building anything. Um, so yeah, the bike industry, I think, yeah, I think the second thing would be what you said, James, that we're starting to see the move away from stiffer, 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 and to actually, let's just make a bike that rides real nice and doesn't necessarily have to be a racing bike. So that's cool. And I'm not a huge fan of like multi-purpose bicycles. So the, you know, these, the quiver killer thing or whatever of, because there's always a compromise. Like if you try and accommodate different tire sizes and have it, you, you've got to adjust the handling and the bottom bracket height and stuff to suit something. Um, but like for myself, I spend more time riding on, 38 millimeter tires and anything else because it's not slower on the road and and I can ride anywhere and it's super comfy. Um, so I think the trend to, to bigger tires being kind of standard is awesome. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and I remember, I think during our last meeting at whatever NAB's, uh, NAB show that was, uh, I have pretty distinct memories of you towing me back into town on a bike Friday with your 20, <laughs> with your 20 inch wheels. Uh, and I think it's, I mean, granted, fitness obviously plays a huge role in that, but I mean, pretty pretty confident in saying that that bike wasn't really holding you back a whole lot. Yeah, it's it, people's perception of you know what is a bike and what is a good bike. I've had so much fun with that bike Friday all over the world of showing up to fast group rides where nobody knows me, and and typically it's when I've been touring, so I'm like you know got hairy legs and you know this <laughs> this some bleached clothing or whatever, and um, and. And it's 
I mean, the, the elitism that can happen in road cycling, where it's like, you know, people won't even talk to me. Uh, it's just like, yeah, whatever. And I remember, <laughs> I remember one, one ride in, in DC and some guy took pity on me, came over and said, you know, we're going on this ride and if you get dropped, here's where you can cut across. I'm like, okay, I've, I've just ridden 4,000 miles across the country. This isn't going to be a problem. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, when we got to the first big climb and got to the top, there's one guy left on my wheel. It's like, okay, yeah, you guys can stop about the clown bike now. Right, right. Um, so, so yeah, really... Like as long as your bike functions and fits you, that's all that matters. Um, uh, and our perceptions of what is is fast or not fast, or it's like, are often wrong. What What's your take on the whole disc brake versus rim brake thing? Because uh, I, I talked to you not too long ago about this project that you've been on with uh, with Kane Creek, doing a, a custom version of their e uh, of their e brakes, um, which. Uh, we certainly got we got a lot of feedback on those a lot of a lot of interest from from our our readers and our audience in general um, because you built that specifically as a way to have a combination of rim brakes and what was it, like thirty eight mil tire or something like that which is pretty hard to do at least with a really good brake anyway um, so clearly you you still are a pretty big believer in the rim brake technology yeah um, you know when people come to me and say, oh, I'm not sure what brake to have. I kind of ask them, well, you know, where do you ride and and um, and what conditions do you ride in? It's like, do you ride in the rain? We're doing disc brakes, no question. Um, but in the dry, I and particularly with an aluminium rim, braking's great. I mean, and it's can be a lot easier to live with um, in terms of I mean, all the disc brakes on my bikes, I don't have any trouble with rotor rub, um, but it can be an issue, and you have to be careful not to get that contaminated or or ding your rotor and, and things. Um, I think the one of the big places will be for me is travel. Um, yeah, you know, I make I have a, a design for a folding bike that I do for travel bikes, um, and I've done a bunch of disc brake versions. But you have to be so careful when you're packing those rotors, um, whereas a rim brake bike, nothing to worry about. You can undo the cable and it's, it's easy. So, um, and there's, the, there's an element of, with a steel fork, I can build in more compliance at the fork tips if I'm not having to stiffen that leg up to handle the forces of a disc brake. So you can potentially make a, a bit more comfort that way. Um, so the... It was it was so fun to work with Craig Edwards um, from EE because I, I remember his work from back with the you know, the Sweet Wings cranks back in the nineties, um, and so uh, it was super fun to to work with him. And I can fit a, a forty four millimeter tire under that under that brake, um, which is. Uh, the prototype I built for me, um, and yeah, I mean, it seems to to feel just as good as the regular EE brake does. Craig says, in theory, it should be slightly more powerful um, because of what he did with the tweaking the geometry a little bit. Um, but still, the you know, really nice modulation and ease of adjustment and and all those things. So, um, whether Cane Creek will make it a production model or not is remains to be seen because it obviously needs a custom frame of fork built 
to suit the because it's a wider direct mount. Um, so uh, yeah, I need enough frame builders to kind of clamor at them to to do it. We'll have, see. You, have you talked to other frame builders who have been pretty interested in in pursuing that option? Because if if it is basically just standard direct mount stubs that are wider. Um, then it seems like a pretty easy thing to adapt to potentially, at least, at least for the custom crowd anyway, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I had to make you know one little tool for my jig, and it's easy. Um, so uh, yeah, I've, I've kind of direct message a couple of couple of other builders and said who were interested. I said, well, you know, go shout at Cane Creek and let's see, <laughs> see if we can get enough enough movement behind it. Um, so it remains to be seen. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to riding them some more and seeing seeing how they feel and, and hold up and things. But um, yeah, so my my experience of the machine machined uh, braking surfaces with you know good pads works so well. Yeah, it it is kind of unfortunate that you know we really have seemed to have hit the pinnacle of rim brake technology, or I guess it was just starting to get really 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 good. Right when disc brakes were coming along, and just it, it, it all—I almost wonder if things like, uh, you know, like Exolith and head that head turbine uh, sidewall treatment and stuff like that. Like if all if all that stuff had come along a little bit earlier, like if we had had those, uh, you know, more development on hyd hydraulic rim brake stuff. Um, if if we had had that stuff just a little bit earlier, whether we would be in the whether we would be in the position that we're in now. I, I, you know, I, it's something that we'll never know, obviously, but gotta wonder. Yeah, no, it's interesting, right? That I think, um, I think like carbon rims killed it because you know rim braking on carbon rims is has gotten better, but it's still nowhere near as good as a a good aluminium rim. Um, so um, yeah, it's a shame, uh, but. Disc brakes are good too. They are. <laughs> they are. They are. They, they've gotten quite good. Um, what What are your thoughts on the whole aero thing? Uh, well, obviously, as a time trialist, aero is super important. Um, and but most of it's the getting the body in the right position, um, and then then the wheels and and then the frame. Uh, and it would be really interesting to get some actual data on like what my very narrow steel control bike, but it's always, it's difficult data to get, right? Because to do it properly, you need to have a rider on that bike because it's the combination of bike and rider. Um, and so to have two bikes set up so the positions are identically identical so you can... It, it's just very difficult to do in a in a way that's meaningful, um, and I think for you know for most of us riding bicycles, whether we're saving five or six watts because our frame is marginally more aerodynamic, doesn't really matter. Um, so again, it's nice to see the industry kind of taking that on board, like with the ethos and with. Some other like more round shoe bikes and things around of like saying, yeah, yeah, we can make it really arrow, but maybe we don't have to all the time. Um, I mean, it's fun. It's fun to like make make bikes faster and, and to ride faster. Um, but it'd be interesting to see will that will the same thing happen? You know, we went through this thing for 
what the last 20 years of like stiffer, 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 stiffer. And I feel like we're in that with aero right now. Like every, every year it's like, oh, the bike's now another three seconds quicker or whatever data point they're given. Um, so we're going to continue on that for a few years and then that will bleed off and we'll find, we'll find something else to, <laughs> to talk about. So, um, yeah, I mean, coming from the background I have, like, it, I always laugh whenever anybody says, oh, this bike's so aero. It's like, no, it's, it's not. It's hopeless. Like, I put, I put a full body shell around myself and my bicycle. That's aero. And then I can, <laughs> and, and then I can, then I can ride at 50 mile an hour. Like, so this collection of tubes with a body stuffed on top of it, and we're trying, desperately trying to make it aero by within these UCI restrictions. And it's like, it's a joke, really. Right. It's the proverbial lipstick on the pig. Yeah, right. Compared to an actual aerodynamic bicycle. It, it, it's the game we're in, I guess. So it's <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this, I guess, to kind of wrap up our, our industry talk, I guess. Um, if you were sort of the, the ultimate all-powerful controller of the bike industry, of like you were, you were the commander of all things bicycle in the world. You could do whatever you wanted. You were, you were, you were Thanos with 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 the, the the magic glove, and you can snap your fingers. What would you do with the bike industry right now? Like, what would you do with bikes? I think I would really like to decouple racing from consumer bikes <laughs> because the UCI regulations everybody has to build to to race in the world tour like that's like less than one percent of meeting the needs of riders um and so if pro racing had a standard bicycle they raced on that was made by the uci or 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 whatever so there was no commercial basis for those bicycles then the manufacturers could work on building bikes for real people without worrying about any constraints or meeting any regulations of like, okay, we want to put the saddle here and this tube here and have this size tube because that solves the problem best rather than trying to fit in this very narrow box of bike design. Um, that's all I want to do. My magic snap on my fingers. Mm, I, li- I like that one. As you can tell by my, my non my, my nonverbal reaction that no one could see on screen because this is a podcast. I'm I'm 100 with you on that one. Um, all right, Rob. Last bonus question of this whole thing, and I will say it is 100 not bike related. I guess you can you can tune your answer to make it bike related if you want to. But anyway, would you rather would you rather fight one horse sized duck or a hundred duck sized horses, and why? <laughs> Somehow I knew this question was coming. I've heard this question on other on other podcasts. <laughs> this was a special request from one of our members. I appreciate it. Yeah, this is awesome. Um, I've never actually considered what my answer would be. So, uh, having having uh, lived with ducks in the past, um, a a horse sized duck would be terrifying. Um, <laughs> So, so I think it. I think horses feel more benign. So I think uh, I think I'd go for the the duck sized horses. Mm, interesting. Oh, I, li- I like yeah, the I like yeah, the rationale yeah. there. Okay, good to know. Good to know. <laughs> All right. Well, Rob, I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up there. Uh, I know. In addition to running your frame building business, uh, you've got a bed and breakfast to run in Eugene, Oregon, too, don't you? Yes, that's my my wife's gig. Um, 
that has been uh, shut down for the last couple of years with COVID, but she is opening up a little bit this year to, to see how that goes. Um, so yeah, it's been a, it's been a nice uh, symbiosis of of uh, having customers come stay and have a place to stay, and uh, it's we have some amazing riding out here in the Willamette Valley, so it's a good place to visit. Well, I dare say, if I ever have some time, I'd love to go spend a night or two at your wife's bed and breakfast, and maybe visit the shop a little bit because I've never never seen it before, and I guess I would I, I would certainly. Uh, say to our listeners that if you ever have, have the opportunity to do so, I bet that would be quite a fascinating trip. Yeah, yeah, visitors, visitors, welcome. Um, I always wonder what people think you know, about the the, the frame buildings. The reality is, it's just it's just some guy in a garage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's not it's not glamorous, um, but uh, yeah, it's my my little space where I get to make stuff, so it keeps me happy. Well, I dare say you're doing a whole bunch of things right. So, Rob, I appreciate your time, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again this year. So, fingers crossed the North American Handmade Bike Show actually happens. It'll be good to catch up. Absolutely, James. Yeah, I look forward to getting on a ride with you again soon. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Nerd Alert at least as much as I enjoyed my conversation with Rob. If you have any follow-up questions you'd like to ask, please leave them in the comment section on the written article for this episode on cyclingtips.com. Or if you just liked what you heard, please make sure you subscribe to Nerd Alert so you never miss an upcoming episode. And more importantly, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes if you haven't done so already. Now, we're normally on a weekly schedule over here, but I also want to let you all know that the Nerd Alert crew is heading to Monterey, California this week for the annual Sea Otter Classic trade show where we will be recording two live Nerd Alert episodes. If you want to check it out, make sure you head over to the outside tent on Friday and Saturday at 3 p.m. California time, even if only just to say hello. And with that, thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.